Shop of Maniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about friend web design and development. I'm Dave in the shed. Rupert with me is Chris in the booth. Corey, how are you doing today, Chris? Heck yes, man. I'm doing all right. Had to, yeah. uh, had to ride my, it was really cold this morning and whatever. I had to ride my bike a long way and my hands are cold. Oh, man. I do not have that problem here in Texas. Um, <laughs> one, yeah, don't leave the house. Check. Two, mm-hmm. never cold. Check. So, <laughs> all right. Well, we thought we'd do a bunch of like uh, questions that you write in, getting back to the heart, the original intention of Shop Talk Show Audio Podcast, where you call in or more like use your fingers to write in questions about stuff. And they don't even have to be questions, they could be just general topics that you think are interesting or things you want to share with us. And a bunch of you do that. Uh, and please continue doing that. Let's get started with doing some of them. Luke Brown writes in. What are your thoughts on X state? You know X state, right, Dave? Isn't that Dave yeah. Porsche's thing? Who now kind of has a whole team behind him? I think. Um, yep. Quit his job. Decided to make state machines. You know, a, a full time gig. We yeah. are slowly adopting it within our large React application at the company I work for. While I'm finding the learning curve a little steep, I can see the benefits of managing state via. A finite state machine. Have you guys any experience with X state or state machines in general? Keep up the good work. You know, I've read article after article. I've published articles on this, not my own writing, but, you know, on CSS tricks, which I've tech reviewed and all that stuff. And, you know, I've heard David speak on it and he says, you know, a lot of things we do are state machines already. So it's not like you're unfamiliar with the concept of it. There's a lot of things like this state moves to this state, moves to this state. And I think the, the, the concept, though, is that if you're a little more, I don't know, emphatic about it or lean into that structure or model it before you do it, that it, um, I think in David's words, like, can eliminate a whole category of bugs, that there's mm-hmm. an awful lot of bugs on websites that are essentially state problems, like your app got into a state that it should have never gotten into because you just didn't, <clears throat> I don't know, you didn't. You happy pathed it, you know? You thought mm-hmm. this would be how it worked, and it didn't. And that's something like X State. I don't even know if there's really any big competitors to it. As far as I know, it's kind of the big name. Yeah. Um, I think there was like a sort of like a state machine DSL, like a, a domain specific language, basically like a shorthand and like markdown for state machines kind of thing somewhere. I, I forget what the name of it I is. I saw something like that called um, Lucy the other day. Just like yeah, L-U-C-Y. Yeah. Um, that looked a little bit, I don't know, it's like coffee script for <laughs> state machines or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it. A finite uh, Lucy, a concise language for describing finite state machines. And it's basically that, like, you, you know, you can, you enabled, you have to hit a toggle event to go to become disabled. And disabled, you hit a toggle event to go to enabled. Yeah, it looks beautiful. So, um mm-hmm. But it is, it's still X state, you know, like it compiles to X state compatible state yeah. machines. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes an X state, which is kind of awesome. And props to David's yeah. project, David K. Piano's project, uh, just because, like, you know, somebody's like, I'm going to make a state machine language, but I'm just going to offload all that state stuff to David's state machine. So, um, and then I, it looks like very React specific, does it? Can you use like X state in view? I, I think there are adapters, but I don't know. And that's probably one of the reasons I don't use it to answer the question. Right. Looks um, like it's pretty well supported in view. Now that I'm just like Googling the docs and stuff, but you know, whatever. I see okay. what you mean. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, every, all the example is like immediately like a, a, you know, it's just a JavaScript object. So I, I think anything could hook into it, but it, the example is very kind of react driven, yeah. at least from my point of view. But what I love about it is you can define the state machine. I, I think it's worth backing up. Every component has state. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Like you have the loading state, you have the loaded state, you have the, yeah, uh, or like state. idle state, I guess would be uh, in video games, you know, in, no in data what, state. Oh, sure. no data state, you have the error state, you have the success state, like you have all these states in your mm-hmm. component at the component level, let alone the application level. Right. Yeah. That's before you even get into like what the component actually does. Yeah, just kind of out of the box, you know, you have that. And I've said on the show before, I really like that Redwood kind of has that built in, like into the cells concept. Mm-hmm. Like your component is a group of cells. Um, but I think XState takes it a step further in like, if you create this machine, you know, I, the visualizer, I think, is it XState.org slash viz? I think, they, do they have something called Visly? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, like that was on product new, too. Like a, um, yeah, right. Or stately.ai slash viz. Yeah. Looks yeah, cool. Yeah. You drop your your state machine code in there that you might already have mm-hmm. and then hit visualize and you'll see, a, you know, fancy boxes with arrows and stuff, right? Yeah, because, I mean, you know, how if you've ever been in a thing where you're like, if this state and this state then do this, you know, you, you kind of have these, like, you end up with all this business logic, all these rules uh, in your template and you know, I, I feel like the state machines or these X state visualizers and stuff might be a really good way to like visualize what's happening in your code. Um, so that somebody could just grab that machine, pop it in here and immediately understand what's going on, where the bug might be, you know, um, the breakdown in my head is like, even the example, there's one on the visualizer says load example, you load example, hit the visualize button and I got it. And I mm-hmm. see boxes and arrows, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. You and that's my it. own failing, but I like, I can't, it doesn't help me. Even the like, simplest example. Sound like my coworkers. Uh, let's see. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- so, okay. So yeah, like, so when you come into the component, like when it shows up on the page, there's, so there's a box with fetch and the first box is idle, right? Mm-hmm. Idle means it's on the page doing nothing. Not being interactive yeah, before it even launches that fetch. Yeah. Yeah. And then it'll auto trigger, I guess, a fetch, right? And it'll go into a loading state because it's saying, hey, I'm fetching some data. Uh-huh. And then from loading, there's two paths. We can have a success and a fail. But if the promise or the fetch is rejected, then we go to the failure state. But if you go to the failure state, you might have Axios does this by default. It retries it three times, right? Like it'll go like retry the the fetch. Okay, yeah. So from failure, you can go to retry. And then when you're retrying, you're back into the loading state. And then maybe it'll come back as a resolve, a success, and you get to success, which is the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, so I mean, I guess that does make some obvious sense. But like, is that, I don't know. Is that helpful to see it in this way? Uh, I So this is probably very micro, but you do know what's going on. 
and all so in on this example, sorry, it's an audio podcast. <laughs> I gotta yeah. describe it. We do have video now, so if you want to check out that over on YouTube, CSS Tricks, Real CSS Tricks YouTube, you can do that. But um, but the the little gr- like it's the the contrast is hard to describe here. But the the idle loading failure success those are your four states it can be in, right? Mm-hmm. And as a designer or a developer, you know you have to code all of those like off black boxes. Um, this kind I of dark see. gray so boxes. So that could be helpful right there. It's just knowing what all the, if, yeah. the, if it's a box, you got to style it. If it's a box, you got to style it or take care of it. But if, yeah. and then those, those little pill shaped things or the, are the actions, the pill shaped things on the arrows, those are actions that can happen. So as a developer, you know, you have pill, to code, you gotta code it. <laughs> you got to code it. So, yeah, there you go. so you got to do the templating part on the, the, boxes and the pills are the things you have to code and you know i don't know as a developer that's kind of relieving because uh it sort of takes the guesswork out i guess if if you're sort of like well immediately i know what what this does or or what this is Mm -hmm. the flow of this component i would this example is cool but i would love to see something weirder you know like an infinitely configurable pizza machine <laughs> based on past experiences you know and we built like a state tree for that and it was like or a diagram and it mm-hmm. was wild but like i would love to know like how weird this can get this example is simple and cool but like show me give me a weirder one i'd love a weirder one and then, so partly what I want to understand is if you do it, because it's it's like some buy-in, you know, like Luke Brown is saying here, there's some learning curve action and stuff. Um, w- w- is it, If the promise is now you did this, now there's no way your component can get into a, a, a unknown, weird, broken, buggy state. Well, how does that enforcement express itself? Like You can't quite see it in the code here. Yeah, because this doesn't really show like a. This just shows the machine. It doesn't really show the the component code, right? Yeah. Like, um, I think it's sort of. Yeah, I don't know. I like I've actually done a X state tutorial, but I think you just. I think there's something like mappings to. Do I return a stateless component for each state? I mean, maybe that's it, right? Like, if it's in the fetch state, then. Sh- then return this component that doesn't yeah, have you would, any state. Yeah, you'd kind of render based on the state, basically, um, and then your methods would just change the state, sort of, you know. Um, right. So I if you have a click action or whatever, its only job is is to, to change dispatch state. Dispatch fetch. Yeah. Yeah. It say. cannot. It, it would not do, do its own fetch. Like you, like they own. So you, the way that you author code is that you have these dispatchable events or it's like pub sub kind of right like you never yeah yeah you only dispatch you never actually do anything yourself yeah oh man that is quite the it's a lot of buy-in isn't it yeah yeah i did a course i'm trying to find the name of it um people that swear by this though i think in their mind what that you would never write and code any other way right every single component in your entire code base would basically be a state machine in TypeScript too, because if you're buying into crap, you might as well just buy it all. <laughs> just buy everything. I'll take everything, one of everything on the shelf. Um, yeah, learn. Was it learn state machines? I feel like that was 
it, but maybe it's been picked up or true. I'm so blanking, but um, well, there's a front end masters course on it. But yeah, but, front end masters um, is our like kind of learning partner at CSS Tricks. We point to for this kind of thing, and they super definitely have it. But I, I think, yeah, I think there's a learning curve because it is sort of like it, it brings in a new piece of machinery, like literally it's called a state machine um, into your components that you have to kind of sort of build around. But I, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to poke holes in David's argument that what we are coding are state machines, you know, we're, we're coding all these sort of wild things, you know, but, but the way we kind of do it is like, I'm adding is, loading to as a CSS class. And then that's going to show hide some divs and do all this crud. Like, you know, I, I feel like we're, um, I feel like David's methodology is, is just very explicit on what it does, you know? Right. So, so you think we're just in a, if you had to bet, we're just in a state where eventually the world will come around to building in this way. And then that's just how we'll do it. We're yeah, just not there I yet. mean, I'm I'm waiting for a component system that has this built in, you know, and and I mean that's part of the reason Redwood is very attractive to me, you know. It's yeah. just it has this stuff sort of built in. It has common ones, you know, but states can be a little bit weirder, right? Animating, uh, transitioning. Yeah, I wonder if that's almost a negative if it has these if it has some built in ones which are like would be might be slightly at odds with custom ones right right like i i feel like you know expressing you know it, you you need to express a few things i mean if you think of like video games and stuff like that like complex organization or like organizations or complex components rather like game models and stuff you know you have the the animation idle animation where mario is kind of bouncing around, maybe he's doffing his hat, maybe he sits down or something. There's like an animation that runs when he's idle. There's a run animation when he's running. There's a jump animation when he's jumping. And he can really only be doing one of those tasks at the same time. I mean, you can, I guess, jump and throw your hat, I guess, in the new ones. But so so now you can, from jumping, you can also be throwing your hat, you know? And so you have to program these machines. Uh, video game, I guess, folks are very comfortable with building these animation, you know, state machines and it works for them. Maybe we should do it. You know, I mean, ours are a little different, but, but if you think about it, like I can never be in a success state if I've never submitted data. So there you go. Like I need to uh, figure this out. So well, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and I wonder then if you start, if you get this into your brain and then start thinking about all the bugs that they roll as they roll in to your app. I mean, a bug was just opened this morning on CodePen from a new developer that was like, I, I, I can look at it and see that it looks state related to me. And it's mm-hmm. in between two states. It's like state is already loaded, but then you need to unload it and reload some new state. And in between those two, the element essentially collapses because it doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to render. And I wonder if yeah. that's a state problem then. Like the, it would have been like, oh, well, when the state is empty, then it needs to be showing placeholders to deal with the size or something. But then it's like, is that just, was it really just a CSS issue though? Or, you know? Well, and that's, I think that's hard because there are other things. I, I kind of have this state issue right now where 
if you like save a file, it should go back to the like or whatever, save a page. It should go back to the page, right? Um, but something's happening where the data that returns on the save is like crunching up everything. So I, I have some sort of data problem where the data isn't coming back correctly, but I, I sort of wonder if it's just a general state problem because could I just like, if you go to the, from the edit screen, you can only go to the like save fetching and then save can either success or fail. You know, like what if I had just a very explicit route that the code had to follow? Um, that would be cool. But I think I'm in this kind of weird zone where it's like, no, you can like upload this and do this. And so I think I've created too many pathways for failure on this one page, you know? So. All right. Good luck, Luke. X state seems Dave, Dave's calling it the future programming. I, I just, I'm waiting for it to be a, like a built-in to a framework. I think that would be the greatest place to be or whatever. Um, let me, let me see if I can find this, this course I took and I'll recommend it. Cause I did take it, but now my brain is. Yeah, that's cool. I can, you get it. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Hashnode. Hashnode is a free developer blogging platform. Go over there, sign up. It's free. It's easy. Boom. Now you got a blog, you know, and it's filled with features that are good for developer blogs. That's what it's a community of developer blogs. So syntax highlighting and all those features you needed for a developer blog they have. It's running on Next.js and Vercel, near perfect lighthouse score. So nobody's going to accuse your blog of not being uh, super fast and performant. That's great. But then Publishing on Hashnode ensures that your content can be discovered by millions of users, meaning that you have the blog. It's your blog. In fact, you can map it to your own domain name, so it's totally yours, but it's plugged into the the, the full community there. So it's a fun place to just have an account and go explore anyway, because there's loads of developer blogs there. So you're, you know, it's this hive of developer writing. So that's fun. Best of both worlds. You own what you create there without the hassle of having to build everything from scratch. So plugs into your content into the massive global dev community markdown support code syntax highlighting support github backups no ads no paywalls ever thanks for the support hash node uh, chris bishop thanks for writing in wrote in about um he's like a front-end dev you know and a designer and he's always struggled with JavaScript. Classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's a good way for someone who is more of a designer and a CSS person to get comfortable with JavaScript? So what's the, what's the pathway there? You know, these days, Chris Bishop, I'd say so many people are, you're in JavaScript anyway, because you're building these sites with React and Vue or even preprocesses that are based in those languages. Or something. It feels like there's so many people that just like are in JavaScript anyway, that that's their journey is that they didn't really have any choice. There's JavaScript sitting right there. But if you're, you know, mostly in HTML land and you're looking at JavaScript, one of the classics I've always pointed to is the like, just learn about toggle class. Like the, if you're going to learn one API, learn about that that toggle class class, because you know what classes are. You're a CSS person. Imagine if an element 
didn't have that class, what would it look like? Or if you swapped this class with this class, you know, and that opens up massive amount of interactivity on the web. So it's like, all you got to learn is just enough JavaScript for that one. But that makes me actually think what you're really doing there is dealing with clicks. So maybe you could learn just enough JavaScript to essentially deal with a click. How do you attach a click handler to something? And once you know that, I feel like it's a big old snowball of, you know, the click changes the class. Now what else can a click do? The click could move something or start an animation or, you know, do anything. And I think that's, you know, if that's all you ever learned in JavaScript, you still have become quite more powerful in your front-end abilities. So uh, that's my advice, Chris Bishop. Good luck. What do you think, Dave? Um, you know, uh, old school, call me old school, read a book. Um, uh, Matt Marquis, Wilto, has JavaScript for web designers, like, there you go. Literally, your question is right here. Um, Matt is a good, like, he works with a lot of designers. He understands the problems they have and, and good at communicating this. So I think that would be a great, you know, way to get your head around. Because sometimes it depends on your blocker, you know. Is it the syntax that's confusing, like the curly braces and when to put parentheses? Is it the, like, events is that what's confusing? Okay. Is it like, what can I do with JavaScript? Is it, how do I make a, if statement do what I want it to do? There's a lot of, uh, I guess, sliders of difficulty, different like barriers that you have to kind of get over to feel comfortable in JavaScript. But eventually, you know, you have like an aha moment and feel, start to feel pretty powerful in the language. You know, I, I think all of us, I've kind of had that because you're like, this is so dumb and weird and it just yells at me all the time. But <laughs> hey, this is now, now I'm writing. This feels good. Um, you know, there's other things you can do is, you know, open up console and type stuff in console because it's actually has a really good, uh, that's in your like web browser, web inspector tools. Uh, console will kind of tell you as you type what, you like whether or not it's going to return something. And that's a great way to kind of figure out what, you know, what it's doing. Now, if you want to do like big, complex, big things, you know, I, I'm a big fan of taking a course, like a video course. I know that's not for everybody, but, um, you know, West boss has some good, like, you know, intro to JavaScript, JavaScript for beginners course, I think is what his course is called. But then he also has a, um, he has like 30 days of JavaScript, I think. So you can like, it gives you like 30 little games or tutorials to sort of go through. And, and you could kind of hone your sort of skills over a month. I think that, that re, what's that called? Repetitive learning or intentional learning goes a long way. So I would recommend that. So JavaScript for web designers, JavaScript for, or beginner JavaScript. Or JavaScript for web designers by Matt Marquis and beginner JavaScript for by Wes Boss would be kind of my big nice. points places. I totally agree with that stuff. It's also kind of unavoidable, so I'd get on it, really. I don't think JavaScript just gets bigger every single day. It doesn't show any sign of slowing down. And uh, unfortunately, that like, hey, where are all the jobs for just us HTML and CSS people? I can't change the industry like it. like I don't. 
the, the, those jobs might be going away, even though that sucks, you know, like having some accessibility expertise and all that stuff when just those languages feels like you should be able to get a job in it. But I never hear good news on that front. I only hear people who are, have that skill set and are looking and are disappointed. So it might just be where we are right now. Sorry about that. But certainly that JavaScript skills is going to open up some doors for you that may have been closed otherwise. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Matt Ondo, you know, first longtime listener, first time caller. That could be you out there. People too, feel free to use the form. Just go to shoptalkshow.com, click that ask button or whatever it says. Send in a question, I think. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on managing like 30 plus WordPress sites. Are there tools you have used <laughs> that you're currently used that you might recommend? Uh, I lead the web dev team for a large company. Our team acts like an internal agency servicing all 50 companies we have acquired and are constantly adding to. We currently use Manage WP with WP Engine as a host, and we like the Manage WP tool, but we don't love it. For some reason, it isn't quite fit as we're adding one to three sites per month to our to our list of them Woo, that's a lot i don't think i've ever done that matt so anything i tell you might be a you know grain of salt it with you're living that life and i am not so i don't quite know what to tell you but i certainly like processes your game now mm -hmm. like one to three sites a month that's all you should care about you what you shouldn't be doing is just be like i don't know throw it on the stack we'll We'll just manually update it or whatever we're doing before because it just doesn't scale as well. So every choice you make has to be about scale and adding things that are scalable to you. One of the things I think about is this might be like the world's hardest transition is just the fact that WordPress has that multi-site tool. Like mm -hmm. you can have one installation of of WordPress and and share it across multiple sites. <laughs> I have no idea what transitioning 50 sites that are not on it to at might look like. But what's kind of cool then is like, let's say you use Jetpack or something. It's just one plugin, you know, you just mm -hmm. install it once, you update it once, and all 50 sites can share it. Doesn't that sound amazing? I mean, I'm saying I would think one of your problems is just keeping all the damn plugins updated across all of them. Like just that problem alone what are you doing about it? And, you know, Jetpack solves that or can help. But I would think even WP Engine can help with that, right? Like they probably have some internal product that's you switch the keep my plugins up to date button switched and it'll just do that. But what else are the problems that you face? Like what else is it? Is it hard to design them? Is, are the, is the build process different for all of them? Like what are your pain points? And that is not in this question. So I don't know what your pain points are. What would you guess their pain points are? Dave? Well, my, my immediate thought is like they have made some smart decisions already. Like they have a tool in place to help them manage, you know, um, yeah. and using WP engine is really smart because you don't want to be managing 50 blue hosts in addition to 50 websites. You know what I mean? No, yeah. WP engine seems a little happy path there, right? Yeah. Like lower overhead wherever possible. And, and I think like what you're saying about plugins, I was nodding along here mm -hmm. in audio format, but I was just, you got to reduce the surface area of maintenance. Does, mm -hmm. and, and because that's, what's going to kill you or you need to, like staffing wise come up with how you're going to like zone <laughs> offense or zone zone defense, these 
50 sites, you know, is it one person, each person, each developer has uh, like is responsible for like seven sites or something. What's a manageable number mm. that they could service, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, if this was Amazon, you would have a full seven member team per site, you know, like a full two pizza team per service install that you're servicing, you know? So, I mean, that's probably not how you make you know, Amazon bucks and your bucks are probably different, but like you need to reduce the surface area. I think uh, WordPress can be hard because it's, it's oftentimes like, Hey, I need you to build me this WordPress site, but we use this one weird plugin that's not maintained anymore, you know? <laughs> so, and that handles all of our payment and you're like, ah, like, yeah, that's a big deal. Right. That, and I bet, cause Matt, you allude to the fact that you're buying companies, so those companies before they're bought have no incentive to do things how you're doing them. They probably right. do things in all sorts of weird ways. If you bought CodePen, you'd inherit our WordPress blog, and it definitely has some weird plugins in there. Like I, we had one that I just installed like a few months ago. That's one of those, you know, ones that has like a was this helpful kind of thumbs up, thumbs down yeah, thing yeah. for the docs. That's like not. <laughs> It has like eight stars or something, you know, like it's not, it's not like some massive thing that you definitely have experience with. You've probably never dealt with it in your life. Yeah. Is that okay now? Mm-hmm. Whose job is that now? It sounds like it's your job. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. So, I think you're going to have to do surface yeah. area. You probably have to like, you know, I mean, maybe it's, you go through every single site, document all the plugins best you can. You're going to have to do it quick because people add plugins overnight. <laughs> But you document all yeah. the plugins and then maybe you rate and grade and then you give each site a grade and and maybe that helps your staffing decisions. Like, oh, this site's a C, this site's a D. Um, but for maintenance and stuff like that, I mean, you probably just, I don't know if there's a tool really. Like uh, we use, what, we use, um, it's it's part of the WP Engine family now, local by Flywheel. Yeah, for the host as well. Local's the local thing, but Flywheel's just the hosting. And they are owned by WP Engine, so. Uh, and I would say that's actually a banger experience for us just because you can, you know, I I just use it for Shop Talk site. But, you know, you can pull that up and, and spin up your site locally on like a map thing. You're not using system map and maintaining 50 sites there. It's all synced through your, your local by flywheel setup. So, yeah. Um, so something like that might be helpful too, like how you're developing locally, make that fast, but, but you're, you're going to have to attack, like lower the surface area for pain. And, and that yeah, that's nice. what I'm curious about. What's the worst thing so far? I sort of get, my guess would be that like, Oh, this site uses, you know, some sites are just easy. They just use some off-the-shelf theme and they've mostly made it work, right? But mm-hmm. some sites are like super bespoke and they're like, oh, this site has like a local webpack build. And so that <laughs> that now nobody knows how it operates anymore, but you can't just rip it out because, mm-hmm. you know, just changing a blue to a red, you got to NPM install and... NPM run start and then change it and that'll process the CSS, which has this thing. But then one dude remembered that, oh, but you actually have to go into header.php and change the cache on the end of the string because there's no cache thing in place or something like that. There's all these little bespoke processes. I would think that's the the pain point. It's not so much a plugin because that's like, oh, if plugin updates are your biggest problem, then 
you know, get it on Flywheel and turn on their auto plugin updating feature and then call it a day. You know, like that that's exactly the kind of problem that's, yeah, it needs a solution or something, but it can be solved with like money and buttons. But like right. the other problems that require human being <laughs> intervention are not so easy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think turning on auto updates would actually be cool because maybe that's easier than update, you know, like, Maybe handling breakages is easier than handling or the maintenance cost is the same or less than going through every site and clicking update, you know, maybe it is so. All right. Best of luck there. Let us know what you do. It seems like there's, 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 there's options for that. I like Dave's audit idea a lot. Like find the sites that are the most important and the ones that are in the worst shape and like look at the Venn diagram of that. If you have important ones in bad shape, then deal with those first. Yeah, I think that would help your situation. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Netlify. You know, it's no uh, uh, secret, I guess, that that the folks behind Netlify kind of coined the word Jamstack. And there's just so much talking and thinking about what Jamstack even means lately, which I really appreciate. Like, what's the the nuance behind it? Like, is there a point where Jamstack almost means, like, that it's not totally static? That you're leaning into the interactive and, like, data-backed possibilities of Jamstack? And then if it's totally static, maybe that's even a different word. I'm not sure if that's the case. But I like that, that it's leaning into this idea that, which it kind of meant from day one, that Jamstack does not mean that it's just, like, this blog that, you know, doesn't even have a comment form because... (laughs) I don't know, that would take a database and we can't do that on Jamstack. No way. Jamstack says this is statically rendered, but there's all kinds of interactive stuff just like any other website has, but we're just leaning into the fact that it's pre-built. There's still JavaScript functionality involved. I can still hit APIs and grab data from databases and put data in databases and do anything dynamic that any other website could do. If there's only some kind of conference we could talk about all this at, oh wait, Jamstack Conf is coming up October 6th and 7th. This show that you're listening to drops on October 4th. So if, as you're listening to this, you have to act fast. Uh, fortunately, you don't have to like ask your boss if you can have the money for it because uh, it's free. So just go to jamstackconf.com and register. You get a badge. You can come to the show, hear all about Jamstack. Excellent speakers, as always. I've gone to this every single year, I think, that they've had it. So it's pretty great. Thanks for the support. Netlify, bye-bye. James Edward writes in, you are using Node. This is some context. You're using Node and need to make a network request at a given time. This time is stored in the database with some additional metadata. You query the database for all the records that are scheduled to time uh, with the scheduled time matching the current time, say by minute or hourly, and then you execute the network request on the related metadata. The result of the network requests are then stored in another database table. Uh, there are some cron-related packages, and they all seem equally popular. Without uh, without one that stands out among the rest, uh, what is the most common or best available method to schedule high latency task jobs with Node.js? Talk about questions I'm unqualified to answer. <laughs> I'm imagining a cron-based lambda. The lambda calls the database figures out if it needs to make other requests and does them, but it'll need to be slightly long running because you don't have any idea how long those, the first query or the second 
jobs well done. It seems like one of those 15 minute kind of lambdas, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you can. But what else? Like, is he saying that? How do you run a lambda on a cron? Or he doesn't even say lambdas. What if it's just a regular old server and you just run crons on it? Do you trust crons these days? Is there like the best cron thing in the world? <laughs> best cron, go. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is best cron? Um, you know, I can say from experience, I'm, we are doing this currently on an app um, using Agenda, um, which is oh, really? a Mongo backend. And so that might, again, like sort of be a deal breaker. Um, but it it basically does what you say. It like goes through and it grabs and then it pulls in and spits out. Um, I'm looking at the agenda. What kind of server I, do you run it on? Uh, DigitalOcean, like in a, a container. So, so it's just on all the time. It's an always on beast. It's, it's an always on thing, but, but the the thing is a cron job hits it and says okay now like go oh, process this it every doesn't run its own cron it runs a something else runs um, the cron I, maybe it has its own cron kind of or it'll it can schedule a cron you know um or and it runs periodically but the cool thing is it's in the database when it should run like go run this task at this time it's in the mongo and so if it falls over or something breaks or, you know, yeah. th- there's still a list of when jobs need to run. Does that make sense? Like oh. it's, it's always saying, Hey, like this is when this job is supposed to run. So you could sort of pop in and see if some stuff broke. The problem we're having is um, like the, the Mongo ran the, the thing ran, but the server like ran out of memory or something and didn't complete all the jobs. And so we were kind of in this weird, like, Oh crud that broke on us real bad state. That's where like Redis is kind of cool. Redis is limited by memory, like literal Ram. I think, um, you know, Redis is kind of the standard job doer. Um, so you may need another database, not, not just your relational database to do that. So, that might be something this I'm looking at the agenda docs and they're talking about bull and Bree or B. Uh, hmm. What are so, they? Uh, bull is maybe another package for um, sort of, I guess running, crunching through your Redis, like bull, <laughs> like a bull plowing through the Redis. <laughs> uh, and Redis is just a, a sort of a task store. It says like, whatever. It's key value. I like the kind of the queuing idea here because if something goes wrong, that is kind of a problem, right? That it didn't like that job didn't get done and it was probably kind of important. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting that because the, yeah, here's, I'm thinking of a couple of things all of a sudden. One is I just had like my host, Flywheel, we just got done talking with them, emailed me and said, oh, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of jobs because WordPress has jobs that it needs to run on a cron too that aren't timed necessarily they're just like this need this is a thing that needs to get done and it doesn't like it's php so it doesn't it's not like always on right php just like responds to requests you know it doesn't it's just different in that way so what it does is it like has this queue of stuff that it needs to do and then when a request comes in and starts executing php it can like check that and see if stuff should run now Mm -hmm. 
anyway, that cue can get backed up, you know, it can be like, why aren't these going? Because one, another thing you can do, this is easy on WordPress is just to turn it off. Just be like, don't, don't do that. Don't like, cause I think it can slow down a request. That's probably like a user requesting your website or something. Hmm. Um, they're like, we turn it off on purpose for some X, Y, and Z reason. What we, what we recommend is that you set up an external cron that hits like your website slash WP dash cron dot PHP, which is like a route that you hit that runs these cron jobs on a schedule. And they're like, just go to cron dash job dot org and you can sign up for it and set up, you know, URLs to hit at certain times and it'll just do it. And, and, and I was like, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. So I log into this website and sure enough, I've had this set up for like three years doing, <laughs> hit, doing this cron job flushing on CSS tricks. And it had stopped working for some reason that we tracked down. That wasn't the fault of this website. It was fault of something else. So not, not that I'd rely on this for anything super mission critical, because it seems like a, just a little, little whim of a website. In fact, mm-hmm. I just donated them. 10 euro bucks because I've been using them for three years and didn't even realize they don't even have a paid plan. They just help me out forever. It's pretty incredible that they do that. Anyway, that's yeah. something. I, that's a great one. We just saw, we were talking in the discord about uh renderer. It's a hosting platform and they kind of have a cron job feature built in. So that's kind of cool. Like, yeah, nice. Be worth your while if it Speaking of the Discord, option, remember so. we were talking about that, like, um, Netlify on demand workers and in stuff. Like, like Alex Revere made that one that ha- needs to clear the Netlify builder cache every day so that it will pull again from CSS Tricks mm-hmm. and build his funny little website. I think we ended up using, didn't we use like, I don't know what he used. I can't remember. I think he wrote something in GitHub Actions, actually, which is can do a cron stuff, too. And then I used either Zapier or If This Then That. Both of them have little cron abilities, too. I used one, and what mine does is reruns the the Astro build process, which is another way of clearing the cache, essentially. So, yeah, so many cron things. Woo! But this is add, really this really adds cool. extra complexity, yeah. though, because it's not just run the cron. It's run the cron, then run a query to get the information about other things that you need to run. It's like a double trouble. Yeah, it's, it's, you need a scheduling apparatus. And, and, you know, this bowl one looks good. There was Sidekick and Ruby, which is really good. But, uh, you know, the I don't know. I'm giving you terms yeah. to Google <laughs> here, but like, you know, like sidekick for rails might be kind of cool. I would love to see like a Postgres version if I could find one, just cause that's what I have, you know? And I don't, it's like, it can run at midnight on Sunday night. You know, it doesn't have to run, you know, my jobs don't have to run every day at a certain time when there might be mm. high use or something like that, you know? So yeah, this bowl um, looks pretty sweet. Redis, but um yeah i mean it just kind of looks like you just set a queue and then you say process that and then you yeah there's two there's many things that can fail in james's scenario it's like the cron could fail and the network request that the cron is requesting could fail and they should probably queue them both Mm -hmm. uh all right let's see let's see ben ben byford when doing speed audits, Google Lighthouse often complains about the lack of width and height attributes on images when using loading lazy. 
It's confusing as often our images will be responsive. So won't the width and height stop that? What's the right methods for this? And are there any lazing loading strategy for background images in CSS? So let's wait for the background images one and think about the width and height thing. That's just kind of outdated knowledge, actually, Ben. You should put width and height attributes on all your images all the time, no matter what. Literally all of them and put the and be truthful when you put them on there. Have them match either the, you know, uh, the I think the right thing to do is have them match the actual size of the image, like the actual pixel width and height. Um, or if if not, I mean, because what it's going to do is res it, before the image loads, yes, it reserves space for the thing. And you think, oh, well, that ruins the responsiveness as it. No, it doesn't. Not anymore. Uh, browsers are smart enough to make that the kind of the aspect ratio for them, uh, which is fantastic. So just mm -hmm. put width and height on all images and for all time, Jen Simmons made that happen basically i'm sure there's lots of people involved in the end but i think without her it never would have happened so if that's your if that's your one legacy which it mm -hmm. won't be you'll have many legacies jen but still that one that one's flipping huge it's reduced a ton of jank across the entire web so wow do that and use loading lazy unless it's the hero image did you have something to say oh no i i think that's it like it's within height or back baby <laughs> You gotta, you gotta, yeah. you gotta use a baby. They're back, baby. Uh, lazy loading in CSS. I'm not so sure. Um, you know, if you can lazy load the whole element, that's that's cool. I guess you know. I'm thinking of that Harry Roberts tweet recently where he had this great analogy where he says CSS doesn't request an image. Like if you put background image URL blah in your CSS, it doesn't guarantee that that image is going to load. It only does if there's a matching DOM element, and then it will load. So that's where my brain goes a little bit. If you're lazy mm -hmm. load the element itself, then, which I don't, you know, that's complicated. It won't request the CSS, but at least that's a lead. You know, that might be one possible way to do it. How, how do you think it works now, David? If, the, if an image is, you know, clearly, you know, 20,000 pixels down a page and not there, but the DOM element is there, it does get loaded right away, doesn't it? I think it does because I think it, um, it's like probably eager set to eager by default. Like I'm gonna need that anyway, you know. And loading images takes time, so I'm gonna go yeah. get it. I doubt it blocks anything though. It's probably like relatively safe. That's what I wanted to say. Like, isn't it lazy already? Was sort of what I was thinking. Like, it's not lazy in the like only when it's in the viewport sense, but I think it's lazy in the it's. The browser is going to go ahead and try to do everything else while it's right. fetching this. And image background and images don't affect; it. they um, affect paint, but not layout. So they're probably fairly safe that way. Sure. Yeah. Would it be cool to have a CSS thingy that says "Don't load this until it's in the viewport"? Yeah, I mean, maybe. Yes, it would. I guess. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because this point, like alone, is why like putting images like content images in your content is, is kind of really cool. Cause you can load this, you know, um, you like, I just, this is, if you're using background images for big blocks of styled heroes and stuff like that, I've done that in the past for sure. Like that's not best practice. Now the, the browser can kind of determine this. So I think like using the image, tag so mm -hmm. here's i'll give you some riffs uh you could create a <laughs> like a attribute or something like 
or data source or something, data BG or something, and then use like a on don content loaded or something, and then query selector all data BG and set a variable, a CSS custom property that sets the background image, and then it'll shoot that in later. So that's yeah. something, a trick. I was going to do, do this one, a video with you. It's one of the one um, I jotted down. Like I, I saw this website, it was pretty beautiful and this is really simple they just had some video images and as you scroll down to them it would play them once and then stop and i was like i wonder how they did it we could look into it and investigate it but it made me think it's almost certainly intersection observer and it's probably about the simplest thing you can do with yeah. intersection observer i think although I, that api as much as mm-hmm. i sometimes i use it and i'm like that was great what a great api to exist off the main thread mm, love it but i somehow when i go to use it i can never just like immediately remember how it works i feel like it's a little weird but i think that's that could be an answer here too yeah like like D- dave was saying if, if there's you could put an intersection observer on for the element and only when it's visible then set a class or adjust the custom property or whatever but then it's like you're Trigger loading javascript to yeah. so there's some cost to that that's like pro- maybe comparable to the cost of loading the image so yeah that would be an issue so uh, yeah, I'm also in the like let the browser do what the browser wants to sometimes um, and we're actually in a good place where we're finally getting some control you know because if your big images in your page can be lazy loaded then your background images can kind of be in that middle ground where they're fetched but not blocking you know so that like that's a good place that's a good place to be so um because the worst place would be like your background image is blocked by the 700 other images you put on the page. And so that that would be the worst case scenario. All right. Let's see. Um, what do you got? Is there another one here? Hey, we got one more by Anon Anon. Uh, how do you deal with landing hub pages and sub pages? Uh, you have a page called services, but a bunch of services are listed under slash services accessible from a drop-down menu. Should you be able to click on the landing page too? If not, what would, would you find if you type slash services into the address bar? Yeah. So, I'm kind of old school. Yeah, like a drop-down menu. that. Yeah, and the directory, do you need a index.html in every directory? Yeah, your page, well, because it's like slash so. services foo slash services bar. What's that slash services? Well, I mean, you did that to yourself, you know. <laughs> if you didn't want to have slash services, then don't have slash services. You could have it slash, slash service dash foo dash bar, and then there is no parent page to them, and you don't need the index page. But I think it's cleaner to have that. Like, I think if you have 10 services and you put them at slash services slash the name of the service, that just makes a certain kind of logical sense. And it's not the most difficult thing in the world to design a page for services that lists all 10 of them. Then people can URL hack it and whatever. That means your drop-down menu, yes, you can click on the top level thing too. And it takes you to that intermediary page. It's like, I'm a little old school in that regard. Like that's a perfectly fine thing to do. I'm I'm into it and I'm in like I, there's no cost really in spinning up that service page. I mean maybe there's a maintenance cost but you know you can literally just put a list of links in a grid like a CSS grid <laughs> done you, you've made the page that's all it does is link out to things. 
but you know, every, put the little icons in there for the products or put a little screenshot or something. I, I think like your users will thank you. Um, and you can even beta test or track it or something. Like we've made that services page is totally not linked. How many people visit it? I would be curious to know that. Uh, if it's in your sitemap, you're probably true. getting some free yeah. SEO juice. Cause you got good um, content on that. Like, page. uh, so I would yeah. probably do that just for the SEO. Um, I would do it for the users. I would do it for, um, you know, there's even a progressive enhancement hack where your services link. It, you just assume that button, the dropdown never works. And so that <laughs> the JavaScript failed and the dropdown would never work. So you could just go to, the slash services, or if you're using like details, which you know, it'll kind of work or something, you know, you open it, maybe you have an all services thing because in my experience, clients name services really poorly and it's not very clear what their offerings are. So you might just want to say, show me them yeah, all. Might and be some advantages you didn't out even from think there. about in there. Even if you're um, like, oh, I don't think that's useful. Well, too bad. Somebody else might. <laughs> right. Right. Like anyway, uh, I think they just, I think it's useful. And so I think you should do it. Just do it. I remember it. when doing the CodePen challenges area, you can go to codepen.io, click challenges, and it goes to slash challenges. Then um, you can go to a particular month. So if you click on the title of that month, it goes to slash the month. And it's not just the month. It goes to the year and the month. And then each month there's a week. So you can click onto the week and they're all, you know, it's slash challenges slash 2021 slash September slash four is the one we're recording this. When you listen to it, we'll be in October and it'll slay slash October slash one. And we, you know, we intentionally decided on that URL structure because there's in a sense, index pages all the way down. If you go to just slash 2021 slash September, you'll see all four weeks of that challenge. If you go to slash 2021, you'll see all the challenges yeah. that happened in 2021. I just discovered a bug while we're doing it that we don't actually link ever to just the year, just because in the UI, there's just not a good reason to link to a whole year of challenges. And if you go to slash challenges slash 2020, it loads, but it loads the 2021 challenges. So there is some maintenance cost to it, I suppose, but not too much. Can you do me a, a favor? Can you look in your analytics right now and see how many hits to 2020 there's been? If you don't want to share that, I'd be curious. I'd share it to you in a minute, but you know what we can't afford is analytics like that. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Uh, it's not totally true. I've been looking at some 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 options, but like I cannot just grab Google, Google Analytics. Not that I would anyway, because there's like GDPR concerns and whatever. The code pen is at the scale where you have to like really consider crap mm -hmm. like that. It's too much. It's so much traffic, so far beyond into enterprise. No, yeah. Chris, get rid of Europe. Get rid of your <laughs> screw Europe. Screw California. Don't don't even worry about them. Check the user ID of the user logged in and only load it for, you know, one out of a hundred sessions or whatever. And then just know that you need to like times 100 everything you see in there. But it's just like, no, it's just been annoyed by that. Then we have, you know what? I could look at Cloudflare because we have that in front of it, but they only give you 30 days. Well, let's say in the last 30 days, how many people went to challenges 20? 21 i guess then. the problem is we don't ever link to that but oh but that's what that's your point right i i yeah like a non-linked page does it get traffic at all i, I have at least <laughs> yeah. one hit right yeah now. that's a good point and another concern though is that they are um that 
area of the site uses React Router, you know, so it like... Okay, so it might be biffed. Like, yeah, because it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Cloudflare might not see it as a network request that came through because it just got browserified, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, anyway, do you want to do any sort of wrap-up things? And yeah, we'll wrap it up. Anyway, I think I think do the services page and on do yourself a favor. Uh, I think it'd work. I agree. Uh, but speaking of favors... Hey, like and subscribe over on the YouTube. We could use it. Uh, we we have a new YouTube over on youtube.com uh, slash channels slash real CSS tricks, I believe it was. So Chris and I have been doing thrice, thrice weekly uh, video uploads. We think you'll like it. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for 16 tweets a month. And um, he, uh, thank you for downloading this in your podcatcher. We're still doing the audio podcast, of course. Uh, so like hearts, favorite up and, um, join us on the discord, uh, patreon.com slash shop talk show. It's a lot of fun. Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Mm-hmm. Top talk show.com. <laughs>